Lupine once scurried along the ruined corridors of the palace, the summoning of dragons under one arm, the glittering royal sword grasped uncertainly in one hand. He halted, panting in a doorway. Not a lot of his mind was currently in a state sane enough to have proper thoughts, but the small part that was still in business kept insisting that it couldn't have seen what it had seen or heard what it had heard. Someone was following him, and he'd seen Vetinari walking through the palace. He knew the man was securely put away. The lock was completely unpickable. He remembered the patrician being absolutely insistent that it'd be an unpickable lock when it was installed. There was movement in the shadows at the end of the passage. Once gibbered a bit, fumbled with the door handle beside him, darted in, slammed the door, and leaned against it, fighting for breath. He opened his eyes. He was in the old private audience room. The patrician was sitting in his old seat, one leg crossed on the other, watching him with mild interest. Ah! Once, he said. Once jumped, scrabbled at the door handle, leapt into the corridor and ran for it until he reached the main staircase, rising now through the ruins of the central palace like a forlorn corkscrew. Stairs, height, high ground, defence. He ran up them three at a time. All he needed was a few minutes of peace. Then he'd show them. The upper floors were more full of shadows. What they were short on was structural strength. Pillars and walls had been torn out by the dragon as it built its cave. Rooms gaped pathetically on the edge of the abyss. Dangling shreds of wall hanging and carpet flapped in the wind from the smashed windows. The floor sprang and wobbled like a trampoline as once scurried across it. He struggled to the nearest door. That was commendably fast, said the patrician. Once slammed the door in his face and ran, squeaking down a corridor. Sanity took a brief hold. He paused by a statue. There was no sound, no hurrying footsteps, no whir of hidden doors. He gave the statue a suspicious look and prodded it with a sword. When it failed to move, he opened the nearest door and slammed it behind him, found a chair and wedged it under the handle. This was one of the upper staterooms, bare now of most of its furnishing and lacking its fourth wall. Where it should have been was just the gulf of the cavern. The patrician stepped out of the shadows. Now you've got it out of your system, he said. Once spun around, sword raised. You don't really exist, he said. You're a, a ghost or something. I believe this is not the case, said the patrician. You can't stop me. I've got some magic stuff left. I've got the book. Once took a brown leather bag out of his pocket. I'll bring back another one, you'll see. I urge you not to, said Lord Vetinari mildly. Oh, you think you're so clever, so in control, so suave, just because I've got a sword and you haven't. Well, I've got more than that, I'll have you know said once triumphantly. Yes, I've got the palace guards on my side. They follow me, not you. No one likes you, you know. No one ever liked you. He swung the sword so that its needle point was a foot from the patrician's thin chest. So it's back to the cells for you, he said, and this time I'll make sure you stay there. Guards! Guards! There was a clatter of running feet outside. The door rattled, the chair shook. There was a moment's silence, and then door and chair erupted in splinters. "'Take him away!' screamed once. "'Fetch more scorpions! Put him in—' "'You're not the—' "'Put the sword down,' said Vimes, while behind him Carrot picked bits of door out of his fist. "'Yeah!' said Nobby, peering around the captain. "'Up against the wall and spread em, mother breath!' "'Eh? What's he supposed to spread?' 
whispered Sergeant Colon anxiously. Nobby shrugged. Dunno, he said. Everything, I reckon. Safest way. Once stared at the rank in disbelief. Ah, Vimes, said the patrician. You will... Shut up, said Vimes calmly. Lord's Constable Carrot. Sir? Read the prisoner his rights. Yes, sir. Carrot produced his notebook, licked his thumb, flicked through the pages. Lupine once, he said. A.K.A. Lupin Squiggle Secchi P.P. What? said once. Currently domiciled in the domicile known as the Palace Ankh-Morpork. It is my duty to inform you that you have been arrested and will be charged with... Carrot gave Vimes an agonised look. A number of offences of murder by means of a blunt instrument, to wit, a dragon, and many further offences of generalised abetting, to be more specifically ascertained later. You have the right to remain silent, you have the right not to be summarily thrown into a piranha tank, you have the right to trial by ordeal, you have the... This is madness, said the patrician calmly. I thought I told you to shut up, snapped Vimes, spinning around and shaking a finger under the patrician's nose. Tell me, Sarge, whispered Nobby, do you think we're going to like it in the scorpion pit? Say anything, um, but anything you do say will be written down, um, here in my notebook, and, er, uh, maybe used in evidence. Carrot's voice trailed into silence. Well, if this pantomime gives you any pleasure, Vimes, said the patrician eventually, take him down to the cells. I'll deal with him in the morning. Once made no signal. There was no scream or cry. He just rushed at the patrician's sword raised. Options flickered across Vimes's mind. In the lead came the suggestion that standing back would be a good plan, let once do it, disarm him afterwards, let the city clean itself up. Yes, a good plan and it was therefore a total mystery to him why he chose to dart forward, bringing Carrot's sword up in a half-baked attempt at blocking the stroke. Perhaps it was something to do with doing it by the book. There was a clang, not a particularly loud one. He felt something bright and silver whirl past his ear and strike the wall. Once his mouth fell open, he dropped the remnant of his sword and backed away, clutching the summoning. "'You'll be sorry!' he hissed. "'You'll all be very sorry!' He started to mumble under his breath. Vimes felt himself trembling. He was pretty certain he knew what had zinged past his head, and the mere thought was making his hands sweat. He'd come to the palace ready to kill. And there'd been this, this minute, just this minute, when for once the world had seemed to be operating properly, and he was in charge of it, and now, now, all he wanted was a drink, and a nice week's sleep. Oh, give up, he said. Are you going to come quietly? The mumbling went on. The air began to feel hot and dry. Vimes shrugged. That's it, then, he said and turned away. Throw the book at him, Carrot. Right, sir. Vimes remembered too late. Dwarfs have trouble with metaphors. They also have a very good aim. The laws and ordinances of Ankh and Morpork caught the secretary on the forehead. He blinked, staggered, and stepped backwards. It was the longest step he ever took. For one thing, it lasted the rest of his life. After several seconds, they heard him hit, five stories below. After several more seconds, their faces appeared over the edge of the ravaged floor. "'What a way to go,' said Sergeant Colon. "'That's a fact,' said Nobby, reaching up to his ear for a dog-end. "'Killed by a, a wassonim, a metaphor.' 
Dunno,' said Nobby. "'Looks like the ground to me. Got a light, Sarge?' "'That was right, wasn't it, sir?' said Carrot, anxiously. "'You said to, uh... "'Yes, yes,' said Vimes. "'Don't worry.' He reached down with a shaking hand, picked up the bag once had been holding, and tipped out a pile of stones. Everyone had a hole in it. Why, he thought. A metallic noise behind him made him look around. The patrician was holding the remains of the royal sword. As the captain watched, the man wrenched the other half of the sword out of the far wall. It was a clean break. Captain Vimes, he said. Sir, that sword, if you please. Vimes handed it over. He couldn't right now think of anything else to do. He was probably due for a scorpion pit of his very own, as it was. Lord Vetinari examined the rusty blade carefully. "'How long have you had this, Captain?' he said mildly. "'Is it mine, sir? Belongs to Lance Constable Carrot, sir.' "'Lance?' "'Me, sir, your graciousness,' said Carrot, saluting. "'Ah!' The patrician turned the blade over and over slowly, staring at it as if fascinated. Vimes felt the air thicken as though history was clustering around this point, but for the life of him he couldn't think why. This was one of those points where the trousers of time bifurcated themselves, and if you weren't careful, you'd go down the wrong leg. Once arose in a world of shades, icy confusion pouring into his mind but all he could think of at the moment was the tall, cowled figure standing over him. "'I thought you were all dead,' he mumbled. It was strangely quiet, and the colours around him seemed washed out, muted. Something was very wrong. "'Is that you, brother doorkeeper?' he ventured. The figure reached out. "'Metaphorically,' it said. And the patrician handed the sword to Carrot. "'Very well done, young man,' he said. "'Captain Vimes, I suggest you give your men the rest of the day off.' "'Thank you, sir,' said Vimes. "'Okay, lads, you heard his lordship. "'But not you, Captain. "'We must have a little talk.' "'Yes, sir,' said Vimes, innocently. "'The ranks scurried out, giving Vimes sympathetic and sorrowful glances. "'The patrician walked to the edge of the floor and looked down. "'Poor once,' he said. "'Yes, sir,' Vimes stared at the wall. "'I would have preferred him alive, you know.' "'Sir?' "'Misguided, yes, but a useful man. "'His head could have been of further use to me.' "'Yes, sir. "'The rest, of course, we could have thrown away. "'Yes, sir.' "'That was a joke, Vimes.' "'Yes, sir.' "'The chap never grasped the idea of secret passages, mind you.' "'No, sir.' That young fellow, Carrot, you called him? Yes, sir. Keen fellow. Likes it in the watch? Yes, sir. Right at home, sir. You saved my life. Sir? Come with me. He stalked away through the ruined palace, Vimes trailing behind, until he reached the oblong office. It was quite tidy. It had escaped most of the devastation with nothing more than a layer of dust. The patrician sat down, and suddenly it was as if he'd never left. Vimes wondered if he ever had. He picked up a sheaf of papers and brushed the plaster off them. Sad, he said. Lupine was such a tidy-minded man. Yes, sir. The patrician steepled his hands and looked at Vimes over the top of them. 
Let me give you some advice, Captain, he said. Yes, sir. It may help you to make some sense of the world. Sir, I believe you find life such a problem because you think there are the good people and the bad people, said the man. You're wrong, of course. There are always and only the bad people, but some of them are on opposite sides. He waved a thin hand towards the city and walked over to the window. A great rolling sea of evil, he said, almost proprietorially. Shallower in some places, of course, but deeper, oh, so much deeper in others. But people like you put together little rafts of rules and vaguely good intentions and say, this is the opposite, this will triumph in the end. Amazing. He slapped Vimes good-naturedly on the back. Down there, he said, are people who will follow any dragon, worship any god, ignore any iniquity. All out of a kind of humdrum, everyday badness. Not the really high creative loathsomeness of the great sinners, but a sort of mass-produced darkness of the soul. Sin, you might say, without a trace of originality. They accept evil, not because they say yes, but because they don't say no. I'm sorry if this offends you, he added, patting the captain's shoulder, but you fellows really need us. Yes, sir, said Vimes quietly. Oh, yes. We're the only ones who know how to make things work. You see, the only thing the good people are good at is overthrowing the bad people. And you're good at that, I'll grant you, but the trouble is that it's the only thing you're good at. One day it's the ringing of the bells and the casting down of the evil tyrant, and the next it's everyone sitting around complaining that ever since the tyrant was overthrown no one's been taking out the trash. Because the bad people know how to plan. It's part of the specification, you might say. Every evil tyrant has a plan to rule the world. The good people don't seem to have the knack. Maybe, but you're wrong about the rest, said Vimes. It's just because people are afraid and alone, he paused. It sounded pretty hollow even to him. He shrugged. They're just people, he said. They're just doing what people do, sir. Lord Vetinari gave him a friendly smile. Of course, of course, he said. You have to believe that, I appreciate. Otherwise, you'd go quite mad. Otherwise, you'd think you're standing on a feather-thin bridge over the vaults of hell. Otherwise, existence would be a dark agony, and the only hope would be that there is no life after death. I quite understand. He looked at his desk and sighed. And now, he said, there is such a lot to do. I'm afraid poor once was a good servant, but an inefficient master. So you may go. Have a good night's sleep. Oh, and do bring your men in tomorrow. The city must show its gratitude. It must what? said Vimes. The patrician looked at a scroll. Already his voice was back to the distant tones of one who organises and plans and controls. It's gratitude, he said. After every triumphant victory there must be heroes. It is essential. Then everyone will know that everything has been done properly. He glanced at Vimes over the top of the scroll. It's all part of the natural order of things, he said. After a while, he made a few pencil annotations to the paper in front of him and looked up. "'I said,' he said, "'that you may go.' Vimes paused at the door. 
Do you believe all that, sir? he said, about the endless evil and the sheer blackness. Indeed, indeed, said the patrician, turning over the page. It is the only logical conclusion. But you get out of bed every morning, sir. Hm? Yes? What is your point? I'd just like to know why, sir. Oh, do go away, Vimes, there's a good fellow. In the dark and draughty cave, hacked from the heart of the palace, the librarian knuckled across the floor. He clambered over the remains of the sad horde and looked down at the splayed body of once. Then he reached down, very gently, and prized the summoning of dragons from the stiffening fingers. He blew the dust off it. He brushed it tenderly, as if it was a frightened child. He turned to climb down the heap and stopped. He bent down again and carefully pulled another book from among the glittering rubble. It wasn't one of his, except in the wide sense that all books came under his domain. He turned a few pages carefully. Keep it, said Vimes behind him. Take it away. Put it somewhere. The orangutan nodded at the captain and rattled down the heap. He tapped Vimes gently on the kneecap, opened the summoning of dragons, leafed through its ravaged pages until he found one that he'd been looking for and silently passed the book up. Vimes squinted at the crabbed writing. Yet dragons are not lichen unicorns, I willen. They dwelleth in some realm defined by the fancy of the will, and thus it might be that whomsoever calleth upon them, and giveth them their pathway unto this worldy, calleth their own dragon of the mind. Yet I trow the pure in heart may still call a dragon of power as a force for good in the worldy, and this one night the great work will commence. All hath been prepared, I hath laboured most mightily to be a worthy vessel. A realm of fancy, Vimes thought. That's where they went then, into our imaginations. And when we call them back, we shape them like squeezing dough into pastry shapes. Only you don't get gingerbread men, you get what you are, your own darkness given shape. Vimes read it through again, and then looked at the following pages. There weren't many, the rest of the book was a charred mass. Vimes handed it back to the ape. "'What kind of a man was de Malachite?' he said. The librarian gave this the consideration due from someone who knew the Dictionary of City Biography by heart. Then he shrugged. "'Particularly holy?' said Vimes. The ape shook his head. "'Well, noticeably evil, then.' The ape shrugged and shook his head again. If I were you, said Vimes, I'd put that book somewhere very safe, and the book of the law with it. They're too bloody dangerous. Ooh. Vimes stretched. And now, he said, let's go and have a drink. Ooh. But just a small one. Ooh. And you're paying. Ooh. Vimes stopped and stared down at the big, mild face. Tell me, he said, I've always wanted to know, is it better being an ape? The librarian thought about it. Ooh, he said. Oh, really, said Vimes. It was next day. The room was wall to wall with civic dignitaries. The patrician sat on his severe chair, surrounded by the council. Everyone present was wearing the shiny waxen grins of those bent on good works. Lady Sybil Ramkin sat off to one side, wearing a few acres of black velvet. The Ramkin family jewels glittered on her fingers, neck, and in the black curls of today's wig. The total effect was striking, like a globe of the heavens. 
Vimes marched the rank to the centre of the hall and stamped to a halt with his helmet under his arm, as per regulations. He'd been amazed to see that even Nobby had made an effort. The suspicion of shiny metal could be seen here and there on his breastplate, and Colon was wearing an expression of almost constipated importance. Carrot's armour gleamed. Colon ripped off a textbook salute for the first time in his life. All present and correct, sir, he barked. Very good, sergeant, said Vimes coldly. He turned to the patrician and raised an eyebrow politely. Lord Vetinari gave a little wave of his hand. Stand easy, or whatever it is you chaps do, he said. I'm sure we needn't wait on ceremony here. What do you say, Captain? Just as you like, sir, said Vimes. Now, men, said the patrician, leaning forward. We have heard some remarkable accounts of your magnificent efforts in defence of the city. Vimes let his mind wander as the golden platitudes floated past. For a while he derived a certain amount of amusement from watching the faces of the council. A whole sequence of expressions drifted across them as the patrician spoke. It was, of course, vitally important that there be a ceremony like this. Then the whole thing could be neat and settled and forgotten. Just another chapter in the long and exciting history of etc., etc. Aunt Morpork was good at starting new chapters. His trawling gaze fell on Lady Ramkin. She winked. Vimes' eyes swivelled front again, his expression suddenly as wooden as a plank. Token of our gratitude. The patrician finished, sitting back. Vimes realised that everyone was looking at him. Pardon, he said. I said we have been trying to think of some suitable recompense, Captain Vimes. Various public-spirited citizens. The patrician's eyes took in the council and Lady Ramkin, and, of course, myself, feel that an appropriate reward is due. Vimes still looked blank. Reward, he said. It is customary for such heroic endeavour, said the patrician a little testily. Vimes faced forward again. "'Really haven't thought about it, sir,' he said. "'Can't speak for the men, of course.' There was an awkward pause. Out of the corner of his eye, Vimes was aware of Nobby nudging the sergeant in the ribs. Eventually, Colon stumbled forward and ripped off another salute. "'Permission to speak, sir?' he muttered. The patrician nodded graciously. The sergeant coughed. He removed his helmet and pulled out a scrap of paper. "Er," he said, "'the thing is, saving your honour's presence, we think, you know... What with the saving the city and everything, or sort of, or, well, what I mean is, we just had a go, you see, man on the spot and that sort of thing. The thing is, we reckon we're entitled, if you catch my drift. The assembled company nodded. This was exactly how it should be. Do go on, said the patrician. So we, like, put our heads together, said the sergeant. A bit of a cheek, I know. "'Please carry on, Sergeant,' said the patrician. "'You needn't keep stopping. "'We are well aware of the magnitude of the matter.' "'Right, sir. "'Well, sir, first, it's the wages.' "'The wages?' said Lord Vetinari. "'He stared at Vimes, who stared at nothing. "'The Sergeant raised his head. "'His expression was the determined expression "'of a man who was going to see it through. "'Yes, sir,' he said. Thirty dollars a month is not right. "'We think—' He licked his lips and glanced behind him at the other two, who were making vague, encouraging motions. We think a basic rate of, er, uh, er, uh, uh, $35 a month? He stared at the patrician's stony expression. With increments as per rank, we thought, $5? dollars 
He licked his lips again, unnerved by the patrician's expression. We won't go below four, he said, and that's flat. Sorry, your highness, but there it is. The patrician glanced again at Vime's impassive face, then looked back at the rank. That's it, he said. Nobby whispered in Colon's ear and then darted back. The sweating sergeant gripped his helmet as though it was the only real thing in the world. There was another thing, your reverence, he said. Ah, the patrician smiled knowingly. There's the kettle. It wasn't much good anyway, and then Errol ate it. It was nearly two dollars, he swallowed. We could do with a new kettle, if it's all the same, your lordship. The patrician leaned forward, gripping the arms of his chair. I want to be clear about this, he said coldly. Are we to believe that you are asking for a petty wage increase and a domestic utensil? Carrot whispered in Colon's other ear. Colon turned two bulging, watery-rimmed eyes to the dignitaries. The rim of his helmet was passing through his fingers like a mill wheel. Well, he began, sometimes we thought, you know, when we has our dinner break, or when it's quiet, like at the end of a watch as it may be, and we want to relax a bit, you know, wind down. His voice trailed away. Yes? Colon took a deep breath. I suppose a dartboard would be out of the question. The thunderous silence that followed was broken by an erratic snorting. Vimes's helmet dropped out of his shaking hand. His breastplate wobbled as the suppressed laughter of the years burst out in great uncontrollable eruptions. He turned his face to the row of councillors and laughed and laughed till the tears came. Laughed at the way they got up all confusion and outraged dignity. Laughed at the patrician's carefully immobile expression. Laughed for the world and the saving of souls. Laughed and laughed and laughed until the tears came. Nobby craned up to reach Colon's ear. I told you, he hissed. I said they'd never wear it. I knew a dartboard would be pushing our luck. You've upset them all now. Dear mother and father, wrote Carrot, you will never guess I have been in the watch only a few weeks and already I am to be a full constable. Captain Vimes said the patrician himself said I was to be one and that also he hoped I should have a long and successful career in the watch as well and he would follow it with special interest. Also, my wages are to go up by $10 and we had a special bonus of $20 that Captain Vimes paid for out of his own pocket, Sergeant Colon said. Please find money enclosed. I am keeping a little bit by, though, because I went to see Reet, and Mrs. Palm said all the girls had been following my career with great interest as well, and I am to come to dinner on my night off. Sergeant Colon has been telling me about how to start courting, which is very interesting, and not at all complicated, it appears. I arrested a dragon, but it got away. I hope Mr. Varnashi is well. I am happy as anyone can be in the whole world. Your son, Carrot. Vimes knocked on the door. An effort had been made to spruce up the Ramkin mansion, he noticed. The encroaching shrubbery had been pitilessly hacked back. An elderly workman atop a ladder was nailing the stucco back on the walls, while another with a spade was rather arbitrarily defining the line where the lawn ended and the old flower beds had begun. Vimes stuck his helmet under his arm, smoothed back his hair and knocked. He'd considered asking Sergeant Colon to accompany him, but had brushed the idea aside quickly. He couldn't have tolerated the sniggering. Anyway, what was there to be afraid of? He'd stared into the jaws of death three times, four if you included telling Lord Vetinari to shut up. 
To his amazement, the door was eventually opened by a butler, so elderly that he might have been resurrected by the knocking. Yes, he said. Captain Vimes, City Watch, said Vimes. The man looked him up and down. Oh, yes, he said. Her ladyship did say. I believe her ladyship is with her dragons, he said. If you like to wait in here, I will. I know the way, said Vimes, and set off round the overgrown path. The kennels were a ruin. An assortment of battered wooden boxes were lying around under an oilcloth awning. From their depths, a few sad swamp dragons whiffled a greeting at him. A couple of women were moving purposefully among the boxes. Ladies, rather. They were far too untidy to be mere women. No ordinary women would have dreamed of looking so scruffy. You needed the complete self-confidence that comes with knowing who your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was before you could wear clothes like that. But they were, Vimes noticed, incredibly good clothes, or had been once. Clothes bought by one's parents, but so expensive and of such good quality that they never wore out and were handed down like old china and silverware and gout. Dragon breeders, he thought, you can tell. There's something about them. It's the way they wear their silk scarves, old tweed coats and granddad's riding boots. And the smell, of course. A small, wiry woman with a face like old saddle leather caught sight of him. Ah, she said, you'll be the gallant captain. She tucked an errant strand of white hair back under a headscarf and extended a veiny brown hand. Brenda Rodley, that's Rosie de Vontmullay. She runs the Sunshine Sanctuary, you know. The other woman, who had the build of someone who could pick up cart horses in one hand and shoe them with the other, gave him a friendly grin. Samuel Vimes, said Vimes weakly. My father was a Sam, said Brenda vaguely. You can always trust a Sam, she said. She shooed a dragon back into its box. We're just helping Sybil, old friends, you know. The collection's all to blazes, of course. They're all over the city, the little devils. I dare say they'll come back when they're hungry, though. What a bloodline, eh? I'm sorry. Sybil reckons he was the sport, but I say we should be able to breed back into the line in three or four generations. I'm famed for my stud, you know, she said. That'd be something, though, a whole new type of dragon. Vimes thought of supersonic contrails crisscrossing the sky. Er, uh, he said, yes. Well, we must get on. Er, uh, isn't Lady Rabkin around, said Vimes. I got this message that it was essential, she said, for me to come here. She's indoors somewhere, said Miss Rodley. She said uh, she had something important to say to her. Uh, do be careful with that one, Rose, you silly girl. More important than dragons, said Vimes. Yes, can't think what's come over her. Brenda Rodley fished in the pocket of an oversized waistcoat. Nice to have met you, Captain. Always good to meet new members of the fancy. Do drop in any time you're passing. I'd be only too happy to show you round. She extracted a grubby card and pressed it into his hand. Must be off now. We've heard that some of them are trying to build nests on the university tower. Can't have that. Must get them down before it gets dark. Vimes squinted at the card as the women crunched off down the drive carrying nets and ropes. It said, Brenda, Lady Rodley, the Dower House, Quirm Castle, Quirm. What it meant, he realised, was that striding away down the path like an animated rummage stall was the Dowager Duchess of Quirm, who owned more country than you could see from a very high mountain on a very clear day. Nobby would not have approved. There seemed to be a special kind of poverty that only the very, very rich could possibly afford.
That was how you got to be a power in the land, he thought. You never cared a toss about whatever anyone else thought, and you were never, ever uncertain about anything. He padded back to the house. A door was open. It led to a large but dark and musty hall. Up in the gloom, the heads of dead animals haunted the walls. The Ramkins seemed to have endangered more species than an ice age. Vimes wandered aimlessly through another mahogany archway. It was a dining room, containing the kind of table where the people at the other end are in a different time zone. One end had been colonised by silver candlesticks. It was laid for two. A battery of cutlery flanked each plate. Antique wine glasses sparkled in the candlelight. A terrible premonition took hold of Vimes at the same moment as a gust of captivation, the most expensive perfume available anywhere in Ark Moorpork, blew past him. Ah, Captain, so nice of you to come. Vimes turned round slowly, without his feet appearing to move. Lady Ramkin stood there magnificently. Vimes was vaguely aware of a brilliant blue dress that sparkled in the candlelight, a mass of hair the colour of chestnuts, a slightly anxious face that suggested that a whole battalion of skilled painters and decorators had only just dismantled their scaffolding and gone home, and a faint creaking that said underneath it all mere corsetry was being subjected to the kind of tensions more usually found in the heart of large stars. I, um, he said, if you, uh, if you'd said I'd, um, uh, dress more suitable, um, extremely, uh, very, um, she bore down upon him like a glittering siege engine. In a sort of dream he allowed himself to be ushered to a seat. He must have eaten, because servants appeared out of nowhere with things stuffed with other things, and came back later and took the plates away. The butler reanimated occasionally to fill glass after glass with strange wines. The heat from the candles was enough to cook by, and all the time Lady Ramkin talked in a bright and brittle way about the size of the house, the responsibilities of a huge estate, the feeling that it was time to take one's position in society more seriously, while the setting sun filled the room with red, and Vime's head began to spin. Society, he managed to think, didn't know what was going to hit it. Dragons weren't mentioned once, although after a while something under the table put its head on Vimes' knee and dribbled. Vimes found it impossible to contribute to the conversation. He felt outflanked, beleaguered. He made one sally, hoping maybe to reach high ground from which to flee into exile. Where do you think they've gone, he said. Where what, said Lady Ramkin, temporarily halted. The dragons, you know. Errol and his uh, female. Oh, somewhere isolated and rocky, I should imagine, said Lady Ramkin. Favourite country for dragons. But it, uh, she's a magical animal, said Vimes. What'll happen when the magic goes away? Lady Ramkin gave him a shy smile. Most people seem to manage, she said. She reached across the table and touched his hand. Your men think you need looking after, she said meekly. Oh, do they? said Vimes. Sergeant Colon said he thought we'd get along like a maison en flambe. Oh, did he? And he said something else, she said. What was it now? Oh, yes. It's a million to one chance, said Lady Ramkin. I think he said. But it might just work. She smiled at him. And then it arose and struck Vimes that in her own special category she was quite beautiful. This was the category of all the women in his entire life who had ever thought he was worth smiling at. She couldn't do worse, but then he couldn't do better. So maybe it balanced out. She wasn't getting any younger, but then who was? 
and she had style and money and common sense and self-assurance and all the things that he didn't. And she had opened her heart, and if you let her, she could engulf you. The woman was a city. And eventually, under siege, you did what Ankh Morpork had always done. Unbar the gates, let the conquerors in, and make them your own. How did you start? She seemed to be expecting something. He shrugged and picked up his wine glass and sought for a phrase. One crept into his wildly resonating mind. Here's looking at you, kid, he said. The gongs of various midnights banged out the old day. And further towards the hub, where the ram-top mountains joined the forbidding spires of the central massif, where strange hairy creatures roamed the eternal snows, where blizzards howled around the freezing peaks, the lights of a lone lamissary shone out over the high valleys. In the courtyard, a couple of yellow-robed monks stacked the last case of small green bottles onto a sleigh, ready for the first leg of the incredibly difficult journey down to the distant plains. The box was labelled, in careful brushstrokes, Mr. C.M.O.T. Dibbler Ankh Morpork. "'You know, Lobsang,' said one of them, "'one cannot help wondering what it is he does with this stuff.' Corporal Nobbs and Sergeant Colon lounged in the shadows near the mended drum, but straightened up as Carrot came out bearing a tray. Detritus the Troll stepped aside respectfully. "'Here we are, lads,' said Carrot. Three pints on the house.' "'Bloody hell, I never thought you'd do it,' said Colon, grasping a handle. "'What did you say to him?' "'I just explained how it was the duty of all good citizens "'to help the guard at all times,' said Carrot innocently, "'and I thanked him for his cooperation. "'Yeah, and the rest,' said Nobby. "'No, that was all I said.' "'Then you must have had a really convincing tone of voice.' "'Ah, well, make the most of it, lads, while it lasts,' said Colon. "'They drank thoughtfully.' It was a moment of supreme peace, a few minutes snatched from the realities of real life. It was a brief bite of stolen fruit and enjoyed as such. No one in the whole city seemed to be fighting or stabbing or making a fray, and just for now it was possible to believe that this wonderful state of affairs might continue. And even if it didn't, then there were memories to get them through of running and people getting out of the way, of the looks on the faces of the horrible palace guard, of when all the thieves and heroes and gods had failed, of being there, of nearly doing things nearly right. Nobby shoved the pot on a convenient windowsill, stamped some life back into his feet and blew on his fingers. A brief fumble in the dark recesses of his ear produced a fragment of cigarette. "'What a time, eh?' said Colon contentedly, as the flare of a match illuminated the three of them. The others nodded. Yesterday seemed like a lifetime ago, even now. But you could never forget something like that, no matter who else did, no matter what happened from now on. If I never see any bloody king, it'll be too soon, said Nobby. I don't reckon he was the right king anyway, said Carrot. Talking of kings, anyone want a crisp? There is no right kings, said Colon, but without much rancour. Ten dollars a month was going to make a big difference. Mrs. Colon was acting very differently towards a man bringing home another ten dollars a month. Her notes on the kitchen table were a lot more friendly. No, but I mean, there's nothing special about having an ancient sword, said Carrot, or a birthmark. I mean, look at me. I've got a birthmark on my arm. My brother's got one too, said Colon, shaped like a boat. Mine's more like a crown thing, said Carrot. Ah-ho, that makes you a king then, 
grinned Nobby. Stands to reason. I don't see why. My brother's not an admiral, said Colon reasonably. And I've got this sword, said Carrot. He drew it. Colon took it from his hand and turned it over and over in the light from the flare over the drum's door. The blade was dull and short and notched like a saw. It was well made, and there might have been an inscription on it once, but it had long ago been worn into indecipherability by sheer use. It's a nice sword, he said thoughtfully, well balanced. But not one for a king, said Carrot. King's swords are big and shiny and magical and have jewels on, and when you hold them up they catch the light. Ting! Ting, said Colon. Yes, I suppose they have to, really. I'm just saying you can't go around giving people thrones just because of stuff like that, said Carrot. That's what Captain Vimes said. Nice job, mind, said Nobby. Good hours, kinging. Hmm? Colon had momentarily been lost in a little world of speculation. Real kings had shiny swords, obviously. Except, except, except maybe your real, real king, of, like, days of yore, he would have a sword that didn't sparkle one bit, but was bloody efficient at cutting things. Just a thought. I say kinging's a good job, Nobby repeated. Short hours. Yeah, yeah, but not long days, said Colon. He gave Carrot a thoughtful look. Ah, there's that, of course. Anyway, my father says being king's too much like hard work, said Carrot. All the surveying and assaying and everything, he drained his pint. It's not the kind of thing for the likes of us. Us, he looked proudly. Guards. You all right, Sergeant? Hmm? What? Oh, yes, Colon shrugged. What about it anyway? Maybe things turned out for the best. He finished the beer. Let's be off, he said. What time was it? About twelve o'clock, said Carrot. Anything else? Carrot gave it some thought. And all's well, he said. Right, just testing. You know, said Nobby, the way you say it, lad, you could almost believe it was true. Let the eye of attention pull back. This is the disc, world and mirror of worlds, borne through space on the back of four giant elephants who stand on the back of Great Artuin, the sky turtle. Around the rim of this world, the ocean pours off endlessly into the night. At its hub rises the ten-mile spike of the Cori Celesti, on whose glittering summit the gods play games with the fates of men. If you know what the rules are, and who are the players. On the far edge of the disk, the sun was rising. The light of the morning began to flow across the patchwork of seas and continents, but it did so slowly, because light is tardy and slightly heavy in the presence of a magical field. On the dark crescent, where the old light of sunset had barely drained from the deepest valleys, two specks, one big, one small, flew out of the shadow, skimmed low across the swells of the rim ocean, and struck out determinedly over the totally unfathomable star-dotted depths of space. Perhaps the magic would last. Perhaps it wouldn't. But then, what does?
That is the end of Guards, Guards by Terry Pratchett, and it was read by Nigel Planer. This has been an Isis Audiobooks production. Please write or phone on 01865 250333 for details of our extensive range of unabridged audiobooks.